Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach switched the record on, so we've got Dr. Stephen Hussey in the house, man. Thanks, man, for coming on. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, so I, we want to get into this this uh, sort of uh, sort of thought around uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, and stuff that you've kind of uh, are putting out there. Uh, and I talked to Nevada Gray about some of the stuff you've been doing with their podcast, and she had some good things to say about that. So, give us a quick rundown on your background, real quick, if you don't mind, and then we can kind of get into the sort of the meat of the matter. If, if, if yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner. Um, I guess taking it way back, I was, uh, as a child, I was pretty sick, lots of autoimmune diseases, lots of inflammatory things, ultimately ended up with type one diabetes. Um, and, uh, so, you know, as a child, I was going into the doctor's offices and seeing all these educational posters saying, you know, diabetics are at increased risk for heart disease. Um, you know, your eyes will go bad, your, your circulation will go bad, all this kind of stuff. And so uh, throughout my probably whole adult life, I've been just really in tune with anything to do with heart disease, trying to prevent it. And, uh, you know, throughout, you know, chiropractic education, uh, functional medicine education, and then just my own research, I found some pretty uh, fascinating things. And uh, I found that, it, you know, what I was told was going to prevent heart disease was, was not what I, you know, determined at all. Um, the, the imbalances that cause heart disease are, are, have nothing to do with, you know, saturated fat and, um, uh, and even, even heart attacks, I would say are not caused by atherosclerosis, but, um, yeah, so I, I really, you know, just been, you know, my head on a swivel looking for anything about heart disease and the things that I've come across, uh, just kind of blew my mind. Well, before we, before we get into the heart attack stuff and the heart disease and whether or not saturated fat causes disease or whether atherosclerosis ultimately is the ultimate cause of heart attacks, tell me a little bit about your, you know, because you've got type 1 diabetes, uh, you personally, if I'm not mistaken, you're following a more carnivorous diet currently. Uh, how is that, imp- how, how is that, stra- and, and tell me about chiropractic education with regard to nutrition, because as an allopathic physician, you know, I, I got, you know, the kind of the, the standard, not very much, you know, basically this, yeah. the, these are the nutrient deficiencies, these are essential foods. And, you know, beyond that, we didn't really talk about diet having any role in disease mitigation or treatment or what, you know, how, how nutrition has a role in, in the pathophysiology. And so it's just kind of just kind of lip service. So tell me about how the chiropractic education may or may not differ uh, what you might be taught, and then talk about your own personal stuff, and then we can get into this heart disease uh, sort of stuff that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, so as uh, as far as I know, I mean, the first two years of chiropractic school are pretty identical to, to medical school. We have all the basic science, uh, and then we go obviously more, you know, um, adjusting and, and orthopedics and that kind of stuff, uh, radiology. Um, but yeah, as far as nutrition goes, 
I I'd say I was pretty disappointed. I mean, we definitely look at, at things more, I guess, holistically is the word you would use, but um, I don't know how, about that word, but um, I wouldn't say that it's looking at things root cause, like, like functional medicine likes to claim that it does, you know, looking for root cause of things. Um, but as far as nutrition goes, I mean, I think I remember we had three nutrition classes and I say I was disappointed because it was a lot of, um, look, there's evidence for this supplement's good for this. Oh, there's, look, there's evidence for this supplement's good for this. Uh, and it wasn't a lot about, um, food, you know, um, and you know, my school, uh, I went to university of Western States, uh, in Oregon and they uh, pride themselves in, in training us to be primary care physicians and being evidence-based. We're definitely on that side of the, the scope of things uh, when it comes to, to chiropractic schools. But I think that, especially that nutrition class is a little too evidence-based. It was too like, it was just citing research after research and it wasn't looking at like, you know, what's the optimal diet for humans. Uh, it wasn't really looking at, you know, uh, different nutrients. Uh, it was just basically take these supplements because there's evidence that it helps with this, uh, especially related to like musculoskeletal type complaints. Um, and my, my master's in, in functional medicine was, was much better uh, as far as looking at like whole food nutrition. Um, but it was still, uh, you could tell the influence of, you know, uh, I guess, uh, modern research and nutritional research um, and, and the, the funding I think that comes from that in the curriculum. Uh, so I'd say that I was disappointed, even though it, it did, I guess, kind of give me that baseline to work from, uh, to, to disagree with, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. We have this sort of belief that we can just add in some magic berry or magic supplement to cure our problems. And, 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 you know, we're finding more and more of this, this getting rid of things it tends to, mm -hmm. to be the, uh, the more sort of productive way to do that, but nobody wants to give up their, you know, their mocha latte uh, frappuccinos and glazed donuts and all the other garbage that's out there that's, that's exactly. there. So um, tell me a little bit about how you are treating your type 1 diabetes because I think there are a lot of people, I you know, we see type 2 diabetes is so ubiquitous and I have people always talking about, you know, the things like Verta Health where they're, where they're having good success with type 2 diabetics in low-carb situations and certainly I've seen that, you know, the same thing happening in the carnivore sort of space now but tell me about type 1 diabetes and i know there's some controversy about what is the etiology of type 1 diabetes but besides that how do, how do you find that uh, your current sort of dietary strategy impacts type 1 diabetes yeah so um first of all i found that it was very strange that you know i was diagnosed at nine years old and um i never got from an endocrinologist uh, any idea of the, the fact that how I live my life would affect how I could manage the disease. Um, it was all about, you know, let's change your insulin levels. Oh, you're eating this differently. Let's change your insulin levels. Oh, you look, you look healthy. Let's check your thyroid again. Let's check this again, you know? And, um, and so by the time I was in college, I started to get frustrated, especially when they, they wanted to put me on, uh, lisinopril and I got, they tried to put me on a statin, um, just because it was a standard of care for anybody who'd been diabetic as long as I had, um, even though my blood pressure and, and cholesterol were fine at the time of those visits. Um, but, you know, I started to experiment with, with diet and lifestyle and found that it was much easier. And, it, and I eventually ended up um, on more of like a, a keto paleo type thing. Um, and I, I noticed that 
obviously re removing the carbohydrates made it easier. My insulin requirements went way down um, and blood sugars were way more stable. And sometimes I didn't even have to bolus for a meal, um, uh, give myself insulin for a meal and it was, it was fine. Um, but I think that, so that was one big thing was removing carbohydrates, especially the processed carbohydrates. Um, but the, the other biggest thing, which was surprising to me, and I still don't quite know the mechanism was removing, uh, some plant toxins. So I got, uh, I got onto the idea of lectins and when I removed, you know, higher lectin foods, uh, blood sugars were extremely easy to control. And I, I can't tell you exactly why I can speculate, but, um, I, I don't know exactly why, but, um, but doing that. And then, you know, I'd say about maybe six months ago, I was still doing, um, some plants, but there were no, the no lectin plants. I mean, the very low lectin plants. I was eating maybe some greens, uh, still some cruciferous vegetables, um, things like that. And, um, and I removed them about six months ago and went, and went total carnivore and, um, didn't see, I mean, the first couple weeks was insane. Like I had to drop my insulin like crazy. Um, and I, again, I couldn't explain why, cause I didn't feel like the carbs was that different. Um, but then since then, I think I'm probably burning a little more protein, um, than I was. And so I've, I've still had to, I still have to bolus for meals. Um, but it's still extremely easy to control. Um, it's just, there's no big swings in blood sugar. Um, I can, I can easily tell, like if something does go wrong with my blood sugar, I know that it's because like the site on my insulin pump's not working, not because of anything I ate or anything like that. Um, even, even stress doesn't seem to affect me as much because there were times when I go be th going through a stressful time and blood sugars were a little hard to control. Um, I don't feel like that's as big of an issue either. Um, yeah. So like anytime something does go wrong, I know it's like mechanical thing with, with the pump I'm using, but yeah, it's, it's pretty simple now. Steven, can you tell us a bit about how, like when you went through that, that exploration or that self-experimentation through nutrition to kind of, uh, look at, look into some of this stuff. Were you kind of just doing this as a trial and error or were you following some groups or anything, or was there any other people that were kind of playing around in the same, I guess, uh, territory that you were? Um, I, I really haven't, uh, you know, reached out to like communities or anything like that or, or support groups. Um, I mean, when I was younger, I remember, you know, going to camps and, and being involved in those types of things, but, um, you know, since college, you know, I really haven't, it's really just been a bunch of trial and error on my part and just personal experimentation, uh, on how certain foods affect me, um, and how others don't. Um, and yeah, I, I just kind of through the, through the years, I've just learned, um, exactly what to bowl is for any type of food. You know, people would always say, you got to look at the nutrition label and, and see how many carbs are in it. So you know how much insulin to give yourself. You got to you know, uh, always, um, change your, your basal rate. So like what my pump gives me throughout the day, um, according to, you know, your lifestyle and, um, you know, like it'll spike in the morning because your cortisol spike, the dawn phenomenon, things like that. Um, but I've, I've found that that wasn't always true. All those different, you know, things weren't always true. And sometimes I would eat, um, a food that I thought would spike my blood sugar usually does. And it doesn't. So it's just like, I think there's so many variables uh, that go into the like, blood sugar regulation. And I think it's a kind of impossible. It's really hard to play pancreas uh, to me, but I, I think I've, I've gotten at least used to my pancreas or, or at least how my metabolism seems to work. 
Um, I mean, supposedly my my beta cells don't make any more insulin, um, but I, I still have hope for one day. But you know, we'll see. Um, but yeah, it's really just been a bunch of trial and error. Did did uh, the doctor or doctors that you were working with at the time when you started kind of look at nutrition were they pretty open minded about it or were they uh, did they push back at all? Uh, the first one was not happy with me, um, and that was probably I was around twenty years old. I was in college, and uh, he he was the one that tried to put me on the Cinepril, uh, and I told him I didn't want to do that, and I told him I was um, I mean my blood sugar I mean my blood pressure was fine at the time. Um, but, you know, and I told him I was doing dietary stuff and I was going to decrease my insulin because of that. He was like, well, don't do that unless you talk to me, you know. And and uh, I was like, well, I, I'm, you know, I've been diabetic for at the time. It was like 12 years. So I was like, I think I can kind of figure it out. And um, but he was he was mad that I wouldn't go on the Cinepril. And he was just uh, kind of uh, wanting to control the situation as far as my insulin went. He was like, you know, email me or call me before you do anything, any changes. Um and then I, to be honest with you, when I, when I went to Oregon to, to chiropractic school, I, um, I started seeing an endocrinologist there, but then I ended up seeing a naturopath um, to, to help me because I found that they were much more in line with the, the way that I was doing things. Um, and then I, I, I don't currently see an endocrinologist now. Um, I've just found that they, especially with the whole insurance situation, uh, I was just paying a lot of money for not good advice. Um, and so I, I kind of stopped seeing them. Uh, and I, you know, at our office, we have a, a nurse practitioner who kind of keeps tabs on me and does some blood work for me. Um, and we kind of manage things together. But uh, yeah, I, I've said I've had some that were kind of like, eh. And then I've had other doctors that were mad, um, or just wanted to control and, and felt like I was I was taking control from them. Yeah. And you know, one thing I maybe should have asked before those other two questions was for some of our listeners who are more or less unaware of kind of what a standard practice of care is for someone with type one diabetes, would, would you be able to kind of maybe run through real quick? Like if someone has type one diabetes and they went into the doctor and they were not going to ask any questions, they're just going to do what they were told. What would, what kind of experience would they be looking at? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can tell you, I mean, it's been a while since I've been in that situation, but my brother is actually type one diabetic as well. Uh, he was diagnosed at uh, 22, actually, which is interesting. Uh, it's happening more and more, actually, because they used to call it juvenile onset, and now it's um, showing up more in, in adulthood. But um, yeah, so he goes, you know, to his endocrinologist, and they they basically they just tell him uh, they change his insulin levels uh, according to what he's saying. Uh, you know, they I remember, you know, I'd have to log all my blood sugars, you know, check it five times a day log them all, uh, write down my insulin dosages. Um, like before I had an insulin pump, I would take like a longer lasting insulin that would last me 24 hours. And then with meals, I would take a shorter acting insulin that would, you know, um, uh, respond to the meal that I'm, I was eating. Uh, but it was, it had to be very structured like that. You know, I couldn't just eat something if I saw it because if I didn't have insulin with me because I didn't, I, I needed to take a, a shot of something. And then with the pump, it's much easier. So, I use the same type of insulin, but um, it, it's giving me a slow drip kind of all day long and that's keeping me stable. And then if I do eat, you know, uh, eating meals, you have to give yourself more for that meal. Um, and like I said, since, you know, eliminating carbohydrates, 
I've significantly reduced the amount of insulin I use, though I still have to bolus a little bit sometimes with higher protein meals. Um, and at first I wasn't doing that, and but then I noticed it was drifting or drifting up a little bit, so I'd have to do that. Um, but then, like if I went to you know an endocrinologist, um, like I said, especially when I was in chiropractic school, I was seeing one where it was just like I would come in, they would say, "Oh, great, your A1C is still six. and then they would say. Um, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't ask me how I did that. Uh, or, or cause you know, my brother, uh, would tell his endocrinologist that my A1C was six and his, they'd be like, Whoa, no way. Like, how is he doing that? Um, and, but this one that I was seeing just never asked me that. And she would just, you know, every six months or so check my thyroid and, um, because she was worried about me getting Hashimoto's and things like that. Um, and, and it was, I don't know, it, as I was learning more and more, it became boring to me uh, to go to the endocrinologist and it was just the same thing and I was paying money and it wasn't helping me at all. Uh, but I, I can't say that's this, that would be the same for everybody because some people might get, you know, really good information from their endocrinologist and, and help them manage their diabetes really well. But the way I want to do it, they were not helping me. Um, and, and I will say that, that my pediatric endocrinologist uh, was an awesome person. And uh, he got me through a lot. I mean, looking back, I wish, you know, he had known some other things and told me different things. But as far as like a, a person and a doctor, he was amazing for, you know, a nine-year-old kid who had no idea what was going on in his body. Um, but yeah, as I grew older and, and learned more and more, it just became, I started to realize that they didn't really know the best way to manage this condition. Uh, and and I kind of had to figure that out myself. Do you have a, like, a, are you privy to the, the continuous glucose monitors? Is that something that you have? I know you said you've got an insulin pump. Is that I've, something you I've, played with? I've thought about that. And if I was having, you know, blood sugar issues, I, I would, um, uh, I would consider it, but, and I don't actually know how, like, if they've gotten like to where they're small enough or whatever. But I remember like when I first heard about them, and they were like this thing, another thing I'd have to implant on me. And I've already got a pump and I just don't like having things attached to me. I'm, I'm athletic. I like to move around. Um, and uh, I didn't like having things attached to me. So that's actually something I've never done um, because of that. But I don't know, maybe they're, are they like sensors now? Is just like a watch or is it things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's something a lot of people will, they'll it just implants just on the skin, you know, sub, mm -hmm. subcutaneously. And it takes continuous, like every five minute readings of your. Yeah, you know, that, would be, that would be useful. Yeah. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see um, do, what is your insulin requirements been like, you know, now, I mean, I guess your, your pump will give you an idea of how much you've used through the day or through the week or whatever now versus what it would have been in, in the past. You know, can you, con can you give us a, an idea of the, the, the dosing requirement differences? Yeah. Um, God, it's been a long time since uh, I've had to, like, I mean, I, I guess I think back when I was a kid and I was eating, you know, standard American diet, uh, I was probably doing like 60 to 70 units a day of insulin. And now I do like my basal rate is like 24. And, you know, if I, if I do bolus for meals, like I'm usually eating two meals a day, uh, it's like maybe one to two units. So we're talking less than 30 units a day. Uh, and then I've heard of, of other people on carnivore um, who've gotten like 15 units a day, which is just amazing. But uh, going any lower than that. Cause I've tried like when I first, um, you know, went really low carb 
um, I would say, okay, well, what if I decrease it, you know, 0.2 per hour or whatever. Um, and if I saw any differences, I'd bump it back up. And I just kind of played with it and, you know, 24 is where like a unit per hour is what works for me. Are you, are you targeting kind of a certain ratio of fat to protein? Because I know you mentioned that sometimes the, the protein is what would, it, would result in you having to kind of up, up the amount of insulin you take. Yeah, I us- that usually only happens when um, like I'm traveling and because I do try and get like a balance of, of, of fat with the protein, like in my meals at home and everything. I'll eat all the fat that comes uh, you know, with everything. But like sometimes if I'm traveling and I'm trying to stay carnivore and all that's there is like some meat, but there's really no fat with it, uh, then that's when I have to, I feel like I have to, to bolus a little bit more. Um, but I'd say that... Usually I bolus like maybe 0.5, like my meals at home. Um, when I have that good fat ratio, what I feel like is a good fat ratio. Um, and that, that does fine. I don't, I don't drift up at all. Um, so, yeah. What has been your, I mean, you were talking about A1C is six. Do you know what that has been recently since you've been six months doing this carnivorous type of stuff? Um, no, I haven't. I'm, I mean, my bullet, my tent, my plan is to, to test here in the next uh, month or so to do my, 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 um, my, uh, all the blood work I took before I started. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what it'll, if it'll change, if it'll get below six or. Do you know what, uh, are there any sort of subjective things you've noticed that, that have either gotten better or gotten worse since you've done this? Uh, yeah, not concerning diabetes though. Uh, but, uh, so for me, Inflammation's always been my issue, um, and uh, obviously, I mean, I had chronic hives and, and asthma and allergies and, and autoimmune disease. But um, one of my allergies was cats, and uh, right on cue, Louis just jumped up in my lap here, um, and I I no longer have that reaction uh, to them. I mean, I it was already much better than it was when I was a kid. Uh, like I could, you know, we could actually have cats, and I wouldn't be, you know, sneezing and, and having itchy eyes and everything. Um, but if they got into my face or I, I petted them and then touched my eyes or something, I would still get a little irritation and I don't have that. And interestingly, um, one of the things that, uh, I mean, I kind of did, I kind of did carnivore like for a week and a half or two. And then I did blood work and I was like, I better get some baseline stuff. So I, I did, I got some baseline and ever since we've had the cats, which has been probably like two years now. Um, my IgE antibodies were elevated, which I'd never seen before in my blood work. And so, you know, that's, you know, parasite or allergy in, in my head. And um, so I thought, oh, it's probably the cats. Um, but after that week and a half, about maybe, maybe two weeks of carnivore, the IgEs were, were not elevated anymore. Um, now, we'll see what they are. And, and when I do it again and uh, coming up in the next month or so, I see if that was kind of some outlier or something. But um, that was just interesting to me because I, I wasn't having those reactions to them anymore and it was, it was decreased. Um, yeah. And then let's see what else I was just thinking of something the other day. Oh, the other thing that I've noticed is that I always had like uh, I'm, I'm a soccer player and uh, my left hip has always, at least the last five years or so, um, always been, um, felt tighter than the right. And that was like the one I pivot on cause I'm right footed. Um, and then I also had like upper trap kind of musculoskeletal uh, type pain and stuff. And that's, that stuff seems way less in the last five to six months. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting about the, the, the sort of the allergy. I've seen a lot of people comment on things like seasonal allergies and, and stuff like that seeming, seeming to improve. And so it's interesting that there's probably, you know, who knows what the mechanism, maybe it's underlying inflammation. And, you know, it's kind of a catch-all phrase because we don't really know <laughs> what else to say. But it does seem that that, that, that is a not uncommon finding that people see in a reduction in allergy type symptoms uh, when they when they change that all right let's get a little bit into sort of uh heart disease because you've been looking at this for a while and we've you know we've had a number of cardiologists on the show and you know certainly uh, people are going to be skeptical you know you're 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 you know i'm an orthopedic surgeon so i'm not a heart specialist you're a chiropractor you're not a heart specialist but right. you know you you do have some level of concern about heart disease being a type 1 diabetic as you know you're at higher risk for you know, heart disease. And so you've spent some time and effort looking into that and you've kind of developed some, I would call them theories at this point. And I saw you kind of send us a sort of a outline of a couple of topics. And so let's, let's kind of get into those. And I think the first one was talking about uh, uh, perhaps, uh, I think it was uh, oxidative stress, perhaps. Uh, so let, let's talk, well, let's, I'll let you outline it. Go ahead and outline it and then we can dig yeah. into the details. Yeah. So I guess it, it, it really started um, when, um, I found the work of this pathologist, uh, is a medical doctor named uh, Baraldi, who was an Italian guy. Um, I think he was at University of Milan. Uh, I think he died in 2009, though. But he spent his whole uh, career basically studying, you know, the uh, idiopathogenesis of, of coronary artery disease and heart attacks. And he would do these these things. Um, you ever been to like the Body World exhibits where they do like interesting dissections of things? And like he did these, uh, these plastic cast studies, he called them, where he filled the arterial system of the heart with this plastic material. And then um, when you heat it, it, it hardens. And so it, he hardened it and then he dissolved away the material. And so he had this cast of the heart. And he found that anywhere there was a, a 70% uh, stenosis or, or narrowing of an artery, there was a collateral system of arteries. Um, and I've been told that, that cardiologists are aware of that collateral system. Um, but the other interesting thing that he found was that, you know, there were people that, that died of like an accident or something like not heart disease related, uh, and had no medical history of heart disease that had like 90% stenosis of an artery. Um, and then he also found people that died of a heart attack and had absolutely no stenosis or plaque formation anywhere. Um, so he did this one study where I think he looked at 208 hearts, um, and 50% of them had no stenosis or, or at least a stenosis severe enough that they think would cause a blockage or plaque formation. Um, and then the other 50% of those 50, 90, 93% of them, um, he said that there was evidence that the, the plaque that was found was not a uh, cause of the heart attack, but a result of the heart attack. So basically when the heart attack started happening, these plaques got dislodged and you know, made the situation worse, probably. Um, so that leaves, you know, a very small percent that that are actually due to, you know, a plaque formation, um, some kind of blockage in an artery. So it, it does happen. And I, I think that it's it's more along the lines of a, a frequency of like, say, a, a renal infarction, you know, those are rare, but they happen. Um, so that got me thinking, you know, what does cause a heart attack? Um, you know, if these things are, if heart attacks are happening without these blockages, what does cause them? And, uh, and I think that they're caused by a, a th three kind of imbalances. 
that happen in the body. So one's oxidative stress. Um, the other is, is not being fat adapted. Uh, and the third is a, an autonomic nervous system imbalance. You know, people call it, um, uh, you know, poor vagal tone and that kind of stuff, you know, uh, improper stress response. I think that the combination of those three things um, and just in the research that I found, it's kind of like this perfect storm kind of thing. Like one of them could be way out of balance and it's, it's probably not going to cause a heart attack unless the other two are as well. Um, and it, it's kind of like, like I said, this perfect storm, this, the stars align and these three things happen and, and someone could get a heart attack. Um, so what are these things? So, uh, I mean, you guys are probably pretty familiar with, you know, fat adaptation and, and, and burning ketones rather than glucose or predominantly ketones rather than glucose. But, um, things that I found, I think that the heart is, uh, specifically, uh, it, I think it's, it has mechanisms in place that make sure that it's like the last thing in the body that would have to burn predominantly glucose because it does burn some glucose and most tissues in the body do. Um, but it prefers to burn fat, I think more than any other organ. And I think the fact that, you know, we package up chiral microns and put them into the lymphatic system and then deliver them straight through the thoracic duct into the, the heart. And yeah, they go to the, the lungs first and then come back to the heart, but that's kind of giving the, the heart this, the, the preference to these fats. And then I think that I found a, an article recently that shows that there's a, a direct signaling pathway uh, from the heart to fat cells, which to me tells me that, you know, if the, if the heart needs more fuel, like in the form of fat, it can signal mobilization of fat um, from those cells. Um, so I think, that, I think that one of the questions here that, that confirms to me that the heart uh, likes to burn fat and big problems happen when they do or when they don't um, is that the heart, we don't have heart cancer, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, if we look at, you know, uh, Diagostino and Thomas Seafried and, you know, their work of metabolic theory of cancer, um, cancer is this metabolic disease that when the metabolism breaks down, it damages mitochondria, the genes get the signal to become a cancer cell, that kind of thing. So like, why doesn't that process happen in a heart? Um, and to me, it's because the body makes sure that the heart is going to be the last thing to burn predominantly glucose for fuel. And then if it does happen, there's no chance for cancer to, to, uh, to happen because a heart attack happens instead. So that's the first thing is I think that the heart really likes to burn fat and ketones. Second thing is oxidative stress. So basically, you know, burning carbohydrates, um, you know, will, will result in a higher amount of free radical production. Um, and, but also we've been exposed to, you know, hundreds of thousands, probably toxic chemicals uh, in our environment uh, really since 1950 that are contributing to this, this state of oxidative stress, which means that there's damage happening to the tissues in the body. And, you know, I think oxidative stress plays a role in atherosclerosis. Um, I think that uh, it plays a role in damaging mitochondria for, for um, like in the development of cancer, but it also depletes nitric oxide um, by the way of damaging endothelial cells, which is where the nitric, nitric oxide is produced, but also nitric oxide can act as an antioxidant. So if we have high oxidative stress, your body may use some of that nitric oxide to um, uh, mitigate some of that oxidative stress. But Nitric oxide is responsible for dilating the blood vessels. But the other thing is that 
um, it's also responsible for relaying a, a, um, a balanced um, kind of nervous system um, signaling to the heart cells. So in the heart cells we have, uh, and in most cells really, but um, we have uh, CAMP and CGMP. And CAMP is signaled in the heart cells uh, when we have a stress response, like a sympathetic response. And then CGMP uh, is, is the, the parasympathetic or kind of the, the rest response. And the CGMP cannot enter the heart cell. That signal can't enter the heart cell unless nitric oxide is present. Um, and so if we have oxidative stress depleting nitric oxide, then we're, we're dampening that signal because every time, uh, at least in the heart cell, I know, and, and maybe other, the rest of the cells in the body too, but every time we have a, a sympathetic signal, um, there's always like a, um, uh, a similar but lesser parasympathetic signal to balance things out. Um, but if, if that signal um, doesn't get relayed to the heart cells because there's no nitric oxide for it to get in there, then we get this CAMP signal, this sympathetic um, signal to the heart cells, and that's a stress response. Um, and so, you know, just like when we have a, a stress response in uh, other muscle, you know, it's, it's triggering, you know, the fast burning of glucose so we can get away from that threat. We can fight it off or we can flee from it. Um, and so, you know, when that happens in a skeletal muscle cell, uh, we get, you know, lactic acid and, and hydrogen ions build up. We get that muscle burn. And so when that's happening to a low grade level in a heart, we get a, a muscle burn, which is angina. Um, and if it happens too, um, too much, um, you know, if, if the, the stars kind of align, we're not well fat adapted, we're more likely to go to glucose burning, um, we're, we're depleted in nitric oxide, and we get that stressful event, which heart attacks have been shown to be to happen on more stressful days of the year. Um, there was a study out of Europe, I can't remember if it was like Sweden or France, but um, they showed that heart attacks were more prevalent on Christmas Eve which is unfortunate, um, what they called their summer holiday, and then also Mondays. And so we have this, this series of things happening, and then all of a sudden we get this surge and stress response without the lesser um, non-stress response, uh, and that forces the heart to, be, to burn predominantly glucose. And so then, um, you know, when that happens in a muscle cell, when we go for a run or something like that, we can just stop, and, you know, the hydrogen ions and the lactic acid get pumped out within the hour, um, but the heart doesn't just stop. It can't do that. Um, so it keeps pumping and keeps moving and we get this build up and build up. And if it gets to be too much, we actually get this swelling or edema in a certain area of the heart. And, uh, that, um, will change the pressure. So basically that, you know, the pressure is usually more from the arteries coming into the tissues, but if we get this swelling of an area because of this edema, this lactic acid buildup, then the pressure changes and now the blood can't get in. Uh, and then we get um, necrosis and we get, we get a heart attack and depending on how big it is. And so some really interesting thing is, things are that, you know, nearly 100% of heart attacks happen in the, the left ventricle, um, which is under the most pressure, uh, which is curious because, you know, you know uh, stenotic lesions happen, they distributed evenly throughout all the major coronary vessels in the heart. So why do we see 100% of heart attacks, nearly 100% of them in the left ventricle? To me, it's because it's the left ventricle is under the most pressure. And so it's more susceptible to those changes in pressure when we get the buildup of lactic acid. Um, so that kind of series of events, I think, is, is what, um, what causes a heart attack. And, and people always ask me, well, why do we always see 
because someone could have that series of events when they're younger. Um, but why do we see heart attacks more prevalent when people are older? Um, and I've actually found some literature that says that, or that shows that um, the ability to burn fatty acids in the heart cells actually depletes with age in mice. Um, and the other thing that I would argue is that our elderly population is, is becoming a bit more isolated than they have been in the past. Um, and isolation is extremely stressful to, to a human being. We're very social beings. We're designed to, to come together. So I think that uh, that is also contributing to this imbalanced stress response too, um, because you can definitely get a, a um, uh, you can get stuck in this sympathetic um, dominance where you're, you're thinking you're in a stressful situation all the time and always having that stress response to a low grade level and almost lose the ability to, to get that, you know, parasympathetic back up again. Um, people, you know, they always talk about the vagus nerve and activating the vagus nerve. Really, they're just balancing the system. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's questions there, but that's, that's the, the gist of it. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. And while you're kind of describing that, I was just thinking about kind of, you know, the world I'm in, the endurance world that seems like in the last decade or so, we've started to see these situations where people are literally dying of heart attacks and near the end of a, like a marathon is where it's typically the most common. And what you described makes a lot of sense in that context where, you know, most folks doing that these days are going to be following a relatively high, if not very high carbohydrate diet. So they're going to have those ratios of glucose to fat metabolism skewed in favor of glucose in higher ratios across the board, regardless of which intensity they're doing. And then, you know, you put yourself in a situation where you're 20 miles into a 26.2 mile race and, you know, stress doesn't get much more than that. If you're going to try to, you know, get a PR or push as hard as you can that last 10 kilometers. Um, and then I guess you could, you know, likely have the oxidative stress component in there too, when you're, you know, that far into a race like that. So it's kind of like the trifecta of what you described. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've I posted some things about this on, on social media. And I think I've, I've made some people kind of angry saying that, you know, don't run long distance on on carbohydrates when when the thing has been like carb loading, I guess, you know, I don't imagine that's something that you do, Zach, but um, I don't know. Uh, is it? No, I don't. I mean, my carb load would be going from like, you know, 5% of my intake up to like, you know, 10, 15%. So I'm not anywhere near like the 60 to 70% you're seeing recommended in endurance sport. Yeah, and I think the the major thing there is that even if you you were like your your body's pretty used to getting into ketosis, and and that's the key I think is is you know if if your body has no ability to do that, like you know these these couch to five days, couch to marathon type things, like you said, people are on the standard American diet, they're not fat adapted, um, they very likely have a high amount of toxins because they're on that standard American diet, so their their oxidative stress is already pretty high. And then they go and run this race, you know, and, and exercise is great for us, that hormetic stress. Um, but like this long distance, you know, you know, people um, it can create oxidative stress doing that. And if they're already in a state of oxidative stress, you know, that's, that's not a good recipe. And then especially if someone's uh, not used to running that much, doing that and forcing themselves to do that is pretty stressful. Uh, and they could be having a full blown stress response, especially if they were already living a stressful life, you know, like they're, you know, high end CEO or just, you know, stressed in general, like not sleeping well. <laughs> yeah. Not sleeping well. They've been, they've been training for this race maybe and their, their body's just in this, this shock state maybe. Um, and it's not to say that, that uh, it's going to happen to everybody, 
but it's just like, if we think about those three imbalances that, that I believe trigger most heart attacks, um, that could be the recipe for it. And I think, um, I, I posted about, um, that guy, Micah True or Cabello Blanco, who is in that book, Born to Run. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, they, uh, most people don't know that he, they found him in the desert dead. Um, it, but it wasn't a heart attack. They said it was, um, I think cardiomyopathy. Um, but to me, I think that's kind of the same thing. So cardiomyopathy is, is characterized by all these um, kind of this the scarring of the heart and the stretching of the, um, the ventricles and, and things like that. And I think that, you know, if we, if we're athletes, we tend to get a lot of, uh, I guess, scarring in the muscle, you know, I mean, I, I remember uh, when I first learned that, you know, how good massages were for, for an athlete, you know, and breaking up that scar tissue and laying down new tissue. Um, and I think that that, that could be uh, in relation to the fact that we're using our muscles and they're, and they're burning carbohydrate uh, when we do that. Uh, and it could be contributing to the scarring. Um, and so if, if the heart's doing that at a low grade level and someone's an endurance athlete like that, and they're, they're, you know, even if they're not going full blown heart attack, cause this stuff doesn't happen, they could be forcing themselves to burn a little more glucose than the heart wants to. And that could be creating this, this scar tissue as well. I mean, they've done, uh, they did a study at the hundred marathon study, um, where it was this group of men who had done a hundred marathons in their life. Uh, and they looked at, um, their heart health. And one of the things they noticed is that all of them had intense scarring on their heart and the ones who trained the hardest and the longest had that. And so I would want to know if there was any difference in that group, as far as like dietary choices of the people in that group, like were there people that were onto keto and wanted to do that and, and see if there was any difference there? I don't know. It'd be interesting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And if, if they had done a hundred marathon minimum, I would be shocked if any of them were on a keto diet, just because like that they would have had to been on that wagon probably well before it got any type of mainstream popularity. Right. Yeah. Unless they were just ahead of their time or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If they caught it on like a wave earlier, if they got the, like the Atkins wave or something. <laughs> That's right. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizers and their patented probiotic P3OM. They are so confident in their product, they offer to provide HBO listeners a no questions asked, no forced continuation, and nothing to cancel free bottle of P3OM, which is paired with their already in place 365 day money back guarantee on all their products. A little about P3OM, BioOptimizers has coined it the Navy Seals of probiotics. The reason being is 99% of over-the-counter probiotics do not colonize in your gut. In fact, most studies show that most probiotics on the market simply pass through your system and do nothing. What makes P3OM different is that it's proteolytic, meaning it digests protein, it's antiviral, antiretrovial, and eliminates pathogens and waste, and is maintainable in the human digestive system. It's not meant to colonize. Once in your body, the P3OM super strength doubles every 20 minutes and helps get rid of bugs like parasites, viruses, and other harmful pathogens and is in and out of your system within three to four days. It uses just one proven probiotic strain that's so effective it's been patented. So how do you get your free bottle of P3OM? Go to www.p3om.com forward slash performance free 
and you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. All you must do is cover shipping. Limit one per household. Offer is valid while supplies last. Now, back to the show. How do you rectify or sort of come to terms with the fact that, you know, there's sort of other theories of heart disease and how does yours play with that? I mean, there's certainly most people would, would, would argue that, uh, uh, cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and perhaps some subfraction of that, whether it's oxidized, glycated, or the ApoB particle, or, or something like that, they would point to that as there's there's solid evidence that shows that there's certainly uh, associational studies that show people that have higher levels of this or that lipoprotein have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, and then there's guys like Malcolm Kendrick who say that you know cardiovascular disease is basically a thrombotic phenomenon, and then we have uh, a clotting cascade that that you know basically uh, combines with an inflammatory response, and that's and that's a cause. So how does how does your sort of sort of observations either jibe with what we're seeing as a way to explain some of these other beliefs within what you're saying, or is it or is it just completely go you know anathema to what these other folks would have us believe? Well, I think that I don't know. I, I kind of feel sometimes. Like I'll be reading some pieces of research sometimes and I'll just be think like, thinking like this whole um, atherosclerosis thing is kind of, as far as heart attacks are concerned, is, is a little bit of a wild goose chase. I mean, I feel like that was something that, you know, um, you know Ansel Keys and his crew kind of came up with as far as LDL goes. Um, and it, it's not to say that atherosclerosis is a good thing to have. I, don't, I wouldn't want that. Um, but I think that cardiovascular disease in the sense of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease in the sense of a heart attack, I think are pretty different things. Uh, they're two kind of different um, uh, happenings or, or circumstances in the body. Um, so, but you know, I, there's, you mentioned kind of a lot of things there, I, the associations, you know, with, with, um, you know, people eating higher fat and cholesterol and then higher LDL. Like I just, I, I feel like it's, most of that's been um, kind of poor quality nutrition science that that doesn't really uh, doesn't really stack up for me, but I feel like has again led us on a wild goose chase as far as what actually does cause heart disease. And now I think it's it's sad that you know with someone like the worker Baraldi who has just been totally ignored because I mean he was he was doing his work you know starting in the probably in the 50s, but lots of his papers came out in the 60s. Uh, and he wrote his book, I think it came out in the 90s or something like that. But this was this was all during the time when Ansel Keys was like, was driving, you know, saturated fat, cholesterol and, and blockages and this kind of stuff. So it was just kind of overlooked. And then um, now, I mean, and there's other pathologists too. Um, Velikin is another guy um, who has, he, he wasn't as, as damning to the, to the theory of, of, um, atherosclerosis being the cause of a, a heart attack, but he was just kind of like, I'm not really convinced, you know, um, based on what, what he was finding. That was kind of his, his take, but, um, I, I mean, I also wrote a book on, on evolution and how it explains our, our chronic disease epidemic. And so I, I tend to take things from an evolutionary perspective a lot. Um, and you know, 2 million years ago, I'm actually reading a book right now by, Chris Stringer, who's the lead human origins uh, researcher at um, 
London Museum of Natural History. And he said two million years ago, that's when humans really started eating meat um, and, and, and higher fat diets. And that's what, you know, made us human uh, really. And so to me, it's like, how could, how could the diet that, that made us human be causing this, this thing uh, that we have this modern day thing called heart disease, which has really only been an epidemic in the last maybe 100, 150 years, uh, if that. Uh, I mean, we have evidence of, of heart disease in, in Egyptians, you know, with the mummies that we did CT scans of, but uh, the Egyptians were known to be a farming society and meat was not, not on the top of their list, on their menu. Um, uh, and so I think that looking at it as heart disease as this new thing, um, this epidemic of the last 50 to 100 years um, and seeing, you know, the diet that made us human uh, being, you know, millions of years of us eating that. I think there's no way that it, that this LDL and, and cholesterol and saturated fat thing really matches up. But I also acknowledge that, that evolution was never really concerned with what happened after you passed on your genes. So who's to say that, that, um, and this is just my, me playing my own devil's advocate. Here's to say that, you know, it wasn't ideal for us to eat, you know, almost hundred percent animal products from the time we were born to, you know, the time we were like 40 or 50 and we, we passed on our genes and then evolution didn't care what happened after that. We passed on the successful species. So is it, is it bad for us after that? Like, I haven't seen that. I mean, this is just what other people have posited to me. Um, I haven't seen that it's, it's bad for people after our 50 or, or the longevity issue is an issue, but, um, but yeah, I, I, that's more of like a philosophical answer to that question of, 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 you know, that, that whole side of, of heart disease. But, you know, I think that when we look at it like that, we have to ask ourselves what has changed since we started to see this epidemic of heart disease and heart attacks and things like that. And to me, the things that have changed are we became extreme reliant on carbohydrates, um, standard American diet. We uh, were, since 1950, there's been like estimated 70,000 new toxic chemicals pumped into our environment. So there's your oxidative stress along with the carbohydrates. And we are living um, in a, a very stressful lifestyle when it comes to how humans are made to adapt to stress. Um, which is which is a whole nother topic, which I, I'm fascinated with too, is like how the stress response developed evolutionarily. Um, but we're living in a way that's completely different than what we, the stress response we evolved to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Chris Stringer. Uh, in fact, I was just listening to some stuff that he was, he was referenced heavily in. And, you know, I mean, going back two million years, that would put us, you know, roughly in the time of, you know, maybe just as Homo erectus was sort of, coming on the scene and you know as we know they they already had stone technology and and you know for butchering and they evolved to right you know pr bring on at least fear possibly projectile uh, technology and we went over this with mickey bandora on one of our podcasts on human human evolution i think it's pretty fascinating but let's talk about i mean because you know you know as you point out rightly point out that there's been a, evidence of at least atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in egyptian mummies and, and certainly uh Dwight Eisenhower wasn't the first guy to have a heart attack, you know, back when he had 1950, which sort of prompted this low-fat craze. But so humans have had heart attacks before, but now we talk about the modern environment and we've got all this quote-unquote food. It's not even really food and all these chemicals we're exposed to. And then people will point out, like, you know, there's, there's other populations that, you know, ate a higher carbohydrate-based diet. Some people 
point to uh, East Asians, uh, you know, sort of the Japanese, and you know, they had a uh, certainly well not a not a vegan or vegetarian diet, but they certainly included higher amounts of things like rice and some other simple carb or complex carbohydrates in their diet. How do you where do you where do you say well this is this is a toxin effect effect this is a carbohydrate effect what's the relative contribution to each um, you know I mean I know we've had guys like Tucker Goodrich on the show talking about seed oils Gary Tobbs thinks it's sugar um, you know I, I kind of think it's a little of everything but where do you where do you where do you sort of rank order these things as is is problematic for I guess heart disease, but really in G- disease in general, I think it all kind of overlaps in my view. Yeah, I think that that's that's the uh, that's the thing. There is like the, these imbalances that I'm talking about that that cause heart attacks. Like these are these are the things that cause all chronic disease, you know. Um, and this just happens to be the kind of the mechanisms I think that that uh, cause heart disease. But um, as far as like which ones, I think uh, I don't I don't really know. I, and I think that. Genetics play, play play a little role. You know, obviously some people are can deal with toxins better than others. Um, some people can um, maybe are, maybe are resistant to um, uh, that imbalanced stress response. And and honestly, your development. You know, the first six to eight months of your life, you're you're born with um, a an incomplete or a, a kind of an untrained stress response. And if you're in a stressful environment as a child, you're learning to be in sympathetic. Uh, and that's developing to be in sympathetic. Um, and so you're, you're kind of, if you developed in that way, you're kind of predisposed to that. Um, but I do think that food has, has probably played the major role. I mean, you talk about seed oils, you talk about um, I mean, heavy metals in our foods uh, and just the, the process of the, of the processed food um, industry and how many toxins have been put into that food and how we're not even eating real food, you know? Um, and then I think that, and 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 I think just not being fat adaptive. I mean, get back to that. I, and it's not that people have to be in ketosis all the time. Uh, I think that you know, there's definitely um, evidence that that could be a good thing. But I think that it's just that people have lost the ability to burn fat if they need to, and I think that that can make them more prone to a heart attack because when this series of events happens. You know, if you're not, if the heart's not able to adapt to burning ketones quick enough, then you're just more likely for that series of events to happen and you start burning predominantly glucose and, you know, the whole chain reaction happens. But it's hard to say where you draw the line and which one's the, the, the one to focus on. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many factors that can influence those three imbalances as well. Um, I mean, there's so many different aspects of someone's life that can lead to an imbalanced stress response um, and a sympathetic dominant person. Um, there's so many factors that can lead to oxidative stress. I mean, we're talking about blood sugars. We're talking about toxins. We're talking about inflammation, uh, which kind of all run together. Um, you know, we're talking um, stress can even contribute to oxidative stress. So it's just this this really convoluted thing. And I, and I wish that it, it would, you know, I wish there was, you know, because because Baraldi kind of looked at the 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 pathology of you know a uh, the stenosis of the coronary arteries, but I don't think there was anybody looking at the mechanisms like in the heart, um, like after that he was he was basically proving that you know it wasn't always a, a clot or a plaque formation, 
uh, and I think he proved that pretty well. But then, as far as I know, well, I do know one person actually who's, who's right close to me here at Virginia Tech um, who's looking at um, uh, heart cell physiology and, and metabolism. And, uh, and actually, he's, he's shown that, you know, when you, when you decrease calcium uh, in a heart cell that you get arrhythmias, you get um, you know, all kinds of things that, that are kind of like precursor things to a heart attack. Um, uh, but he's, he's the only one that I know of that's looking at like what happens when the heart cells get different signals from different um, bodily systems, you know, mainly the, the, the stress response. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a good answer, but it's hard to really say which one to focus on um, the best. But even if it's not like the one that you need to work on the best, like all the things I'm suggesting are going to make a person healthier. So. Well, let's get into that because I think, I think like a lot of people like actionable you know, information. So let's, you know, let's presume that your theory is correct and, uh, and it may or may not be. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly open to, to, to different suggestions. And, you know, I think, I think we're, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. And certainly uh, there's probably common things that we do that will affect all these things. But uh, what, what do you think, you know, some of the things that people can do to, you know, just, I guess minimize the risk for cardiovascular disease, but in general, general health. So, what do you, where, where do you fall on what you would recommend to, say, a patient comes into your to see you at the clinic and you're, and they say, hey, doc, I'm, I'm 42 and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just not feeling good and I'm, you know, I got 20 pounds of extra gut and what do I do, man, to prevent me from having a heart attack when I'm 55? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, I like to teach them about these these three imbalances and, and. I like to teach them how to track these things. I mean, you can obviously track, you know, getting into ketosis, um, and if your body's doing that, uh, and if you're 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 burning ketones, uh, which is like you know a, a ketone monitor. Um, so that's that's the one thing I teach them. Like I work with clients online, uh, and that's that's the first usual part of the plan is is let's get them fat adapted or at least have the ability to to quickly convert to burning. Uh, fatty acids and ketones and then tell them teach them how to track that which is you know you know many pointers there it's just you know restrict carbohydrates for a while until you get into that fat burning state and then if people want they can they can go back and forth i don't recommend it but you know they can do that um so you know follow ketogenic diets number one uh as far as oxidative stress um i mean not burning carbohydrates i believe is going to going to help them reduce stress, make less, you know, I call it like the exhaust, you know, every time you burn energy, you're going to make a waste product, kind of like a car makes an exhaust. Um, but when you burn uh, fats, you're going to make less exhaust. So that's going to result in less oxidative stress. Um, but then the other thing is, is stabilize your blood sugars, advanced glycation end products, which, which are basically glucose damaged um, cells and, and, and molecules in your body, um, which when you're restricting carbohydrates to getting ketosis, it kind of takes care of that. You know, you're going to, you're going to reduce the, uh, the amount of damage, which is what a diabetic looks for when they look at their A1C, the amount of glucose damaged red blood cells in their, in their blood. Um, and then, uh, lowering inflammation. So, uh, I think that a lot of these toxins, I think, um, that I talk about, uh, are going to lower inflammation. Um, but toxins themselves can, can, um, result in oxidative stress. So we're talking heavy metals. So you could have mercury in your teeth. You could have, you could be cooking with aluminum and using aluminum foil. You could 
um, you know, it could be eating high mercury fish. You could, it could be heavy metals in your tap water. I mean, so it's really just looking at your life and learning where you need to, to reduce the amount of toxins you're being exposed to every single day. Um, so that's just the heavy metal side of things. I mean, there's also, um, you know, the plasticizers in plastic, um, there's all the artificial fragrances, um, uh, and you know, the little glade plugins and the colognes and perfumes, all these different things, you know, you know, you may be able to toxic or detoxify them quickly, but when you're exposed to them every single day and lots of them every single day, your body gets overburdened, um, and it can you know, cause oxidative stress. Um, that's it for oxidative stress. That's so really, you know, burn fats and then, um, uh, reduce toxin exposure. Um, and then as far as the, the stress response, so this one's probably the most interesting to me because it's the one that was kind of out of left field whenever, uh, I mean, we learned about sympathetic and parasympathetic, um, but you didn't learn about the nuance of it, um, uh, in a medical education, at least I didn't. And so, um, Basically, the idea behind it is that as mammals, our stress response evolved to only happen whenever um, something was threatening our life. You know, whether we either we had to fight it off or flee from it. And if we look at animals in the wild, so uh, uh, as a biologist at Stanford, Robert Sapolsky, uh, who has shown that um, the stress response of a of a I think it was zebras. Um, was like non-existent when they were just grazing on the savanna, and then like a threat came out of the bushes or like a cheetah or something, and they had a stress response. You know, they had the appropriate stress response, the adrenaline response, and but if they got away, um, the stress response went right back down. It was almost like it never happened. Um, and so, but for a human, we could have that stressful thing happen to us. We get into a car accident, or we could almost get into a car accident, um, or something like that, and literally be thinking about it the rest of the day. Um, and or or see it happen to somebody else, even though we were never in danger, and we think and it stresses us out the rest of the day, and that's just kind of the, you know, I guess the consequence of our hard level thinking. But we're the only species I think that can that literally, you know, think our way into a stress response. And so the reason that's relevant is because you know, when we look at our lives today, it's just it's we're living in an unnatural way, I think, um, and it's a very it's a very stressful thing. I mean, I I think that this quest for money. Um, is necessary in today's society, but it's very stressful to us to be so dependent on that one thing to get all of our resources for us, um, you know, to give us our home and our food and, and provide for our families and everything. And so we end up doing whatever it takes to get that thing. Uh, and that's, that includes putting up with your stressful jobs and, um, and you know, uh, getting up at unnatural times of the day and, and, and sacrificing your, your health because you're not paying attention to that, you're paying attention to your job and all these types of things. And so, but even if we look at just the fact that we evolved in a, you know, a more natural setting, a nature setting, and now the majority of people, I think it's estimated in the next like 10 to 20 years or so, the majority of people will live in cities, which are, which are very stressful to humans. So, um, you know, the noises and the, um, uh, the, uh, even like they've shown that the, like the sharp edges of buildings and things that aren't round, like they are in nature, is stressful to us. And even though we're not having an adrenaline response to it, because uh, our minds can override the fact, oh, that's not, that's not a threat, it's not gonna hurt me, but the, our bodies can be having, you know, um, uh, a physiologically stressful response to it. I mean, light is a perfect example, you know, like the blue light, um, and that can, how that can, you know, upregulate our sympathetic 
um, uh, response. And so all these little things are, are driving this, um, this imbalance in our stress response. And it's almost like I compare it to like the, the clutch on a manual car. Like you get really used to one clutch. Um, and then let's say all of a sudden you go into a stressful job or a stressful situation, or you just, you become an adult and you realize that life's stressful or something. And, and you all of a sudden you have to learn how to drive this new clutch. And at first it's weird. You know, it's, it's, it, it feels weird um, because you're not used to being this stressed, but eventually it becomes normal. You get used to that clutch. It's just what you drive. Um, and then you, you get so used to that, that if you were to go back to the other clutch, that it would feel weird. It would feel weird to go back to a, a balanced stress state. Um, and that's the state I think of, of most um, people living in, in, in Western societies, I think, is that we're, um, we're, we have this chronic low level stress response happening all the time. Um, and, and that's, like I said, we talked about with the heart. I think that that's um, decreasing the, the ability of our body to get that signal um, to those cells, um, especially you know, in the case of heart, it, if, if we don't have nitric oxide and we're not getting that balance signal, that, that predisposes us to, to a heart attack. Um, and so things you can do to, to regulate that stress response and to, um, uh, I guess people say stimulate your vagus nerve, but it's really just balancing the, the kind of opposing responses or the opposing signals of the vagus nerve. Um, but contact with nature, is huge. Um, I mean, they've done so many studies that show that, um, you know, exposure to green spaces, uh, reduces cortisol levels. Um, they, you could do, I mean, community, um, you know, just uh, finding your tribe contact with people, um, not being isolated, not secluding yourself off or cutting yourself off. Um, and then, uh, gut health actually is, is huge for rebalancing that stress response and the, you know, the heart and the gut are some of the most innervated, um, uh, organs by the vagus nerve and i think it's because you know the gut is kind of one way our body is sensing our external environment because our gut's kind of an external environment inside our bodies and so uh if the gut is in a hostile state then your body's kind of getting that that stress signal from it and one way to create a hostile state in your gut is to eat plant toxins um specifically um gluten uh the most famous lectin that's been definitely shown to cause that kind of stuff but who knows about other plant toxins as well um, salicylates maybe they've been shown to it uh, as well but um, and then there's other ways that people have found to like hack the vagus nerve to like stimulate it like like gargling or or stimulating the gag reflex or uh, cold plunges things like that have been shown to to stimulate this vagus nerve and, and rebalance our stress response and then there's the things that everybody thinks of too like um, uh, like yoga and meditation and just like mindfulness kind of stuff as well um, uh, some kind of, of, of practice like that has been shown to, to regulate that, that stress response. But I think that is, that's huge, um, the, the stress response one, not just for, for the heart, um, but for everything. I mean, if you, were, if you chronically thought that you were trying to get away from a threat, your body is not going to pay attention to digesting, not going to be paying attention to reproducing or detoxifying or sleeping. And so people with this imbalanced stress response are going to see things like digestive issues, uh, they're going to see insomnia. They're going to see, uh, I mean, all kinds of things across the board. Like your body's just not in tone with those. And I think that um, like the, the last thing I'll say about that is that I think that, you know, there's a reason we say things like, taking it back to the heart, there's a reason we say things like um, 
uh, you gave it all your heart or I love you with all my heart and not I love you with all my spleen or something like that, you know? Because uh, I think that the heart is, is this, it has this, uh, this connection with our vagus nerve. Obviously, it's one of the most innervated by the vagus nerve. And so the state, the emotional state, our emotional state is reflected uh, in our heart. And I think that it's interesting if you look at um, the vagus nerve from the heart actually has some, some innervations to the, the facial muscles. Um, so it's like, you know, how, what we're feeling in our heart is expressed through our face. Uh, and we can we can see that uh, and how people feel. And so I think that there's this huge connection, obviously, to the heart and our emotional state. And so if that is if that is out of balance, um, that's just evidence that you know there's an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, and and I think that predisposes us to to a heart attack. It's it's actually really eye-opening when you kind of list that stuff where you start to realize like it's kind of. Uh, a real a cascading effect where you get one of those things and they tend to be kind of coupled with the other ones. When you think about it, you talk about the environmental side of things with the heavy metals and things. And, and we actually had Dr. Anthony J on the show for episode 132 when we did a deep dive into that stuff as well as kind of like, you know, all the hygiene stuff like deodorants and whatnot. And then you couple that with, uh, you know, any of those, any, increase in heavy metal exposure you're going to get from living in a big city with a lot of the cars and exhaust and brake, brake, brake pad dust and things like that. And then the stressful side of just being living in a big city. And then you take away a lot of your green space. And it's like, these things all tend to kind of like culminate together to make that perfect storm. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that it is that it's that it's that perfect storm. And that's why we don't see everybody just dropping dead of heart attacks. I think that, you know, it, it kind of, is this when the stars align situation um, and, and these are the balances that are driving most chronic disease in society. And sometimes they drive it in the direction of, of someone having a heart attack. Is there like a good study that shows like increased heart attack rates in big cities versus like people living out in the rural areas or anything like that? Um, not that I've seen, but I have seen one and this is uh, an association study. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but it showed that um, they, um, they, they found that the amount of green space in a neighborhood was directly related to the amount of heart attacks they saw. Um, uh, or the amount of, they didn't say heart attacks, they said heart disease, um, which, which when you read the paper, it was, they were looking for heart attacks. So um, that was interesting to me. Um, but no, I don't know. I don't know if there's ever been like a, 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 a big city type of thing. The, the one thing that I do, I, I'd like to point out to people is that the China study, um, which you know says that the meat's bad for us and we shouldn't eat it? Um, one of the flaws in it was that when they looked at this this population of people, the people who were living in the cities were um, eating more meat, and so there's all these things in the city that I just talked about that could be driving heart attacks and heart disease. And so obviously it's, it's epidemiology and it's, it's not, you can't pin that to the, to, um, to the meat, but it's just like, look at the different environments. So if you look at the people who had lower rates of heart attacks, they were eating less meat, but they were living in rural areas. Um, so there was more green space. There was less toxins. There was more contact with nature, like all these different things. Um, there was, there was um, I would say more community, you know, as much as cities cram people together, people are more isolated out there, I think, than people who are um, living out in, in, uh, in rural communities. Um, so all kinds of issues with that study, but I like to point that out to people that, that, that there's so many different imbalances that, have, that were driven during that and you can't blame the meat.
Well, I mean, they certainly do, and it's, it's, I mean, it's shocking that we would suggest that, that there are, you know, confounders in these epidemiologic studies, and I'm obviously saying that with tongue-in-cheek. Um, let me go back to the gut inflammation, or uh, some people like to talk about gut permeability. Are you assessing that in your patients in any way, and if so, I'll let you do that. I know we have Paul Mason on, or I've talked with Paul, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Paul, he's an Australian doctor that's the carnivore diet advocate, he's using something called fecal calprotectin and, you know, possibly looking at zonulin uh, and uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin, which are markers of uh, intestinal permeability. So do you have any sort of, I mean, how are you assessing your patients? Because, you know, this is all nice and, and stuff and theoretical, but some people want to know, how do I know if I'm getting better or worse? And I, I often sort of defer to the fact that a lot of it is subjective and we can tend to trust that. But there is, you know, if we're going to start making these new hypotheses that, you know, maybe heart disease is, is due to uh, exposure to toxins or oxidative stress or the wrong fuel source or that, you know, diseases have sort of origins in gut permeability or gut inflammation, how, how are we going to assess that or what, what tools are you using currently, if any? Um, I, at one point, I was using this, this lab called Vibrant America, and they were, they were doing like a uh, a gut permeability um, panels, what they called it. And they were looking for like zonulin and things like things that would break down when you had gut permeability, but it was expensive. And I've, I've kind of found that most people who come to me need gut healing. Um, and so I would rather them put the money toward changing their diet than this expensive test. Um, I think it isn't, isn't Paul down in like Australia and, and there's, there's a little cost to them as far as testing goes. Um, whereas in this country, we, we've got an issue with that because people are already paying thousands of dollars for health insurance and they don't want to pay for all this testing too, much less, you know, the, the VI charge and the, the, to change their diet or if I recommend supplements, which is rare um, to pay for that kind of stuff. So, um, so there's that. And so I kind of stopped using that unless someone just really wants it. Um, then, then I'll, I'll do that because some people do, like you said, like, it's kind of like a tool. It's like, they want to see what's wrong and they want to see the progress. Um, but the things that, that I use, um, like I talked about with, the uh, as far as fat adapting is just, you know, measuring ketones. Um, but for oxidative stress, I mean, we can look at things. I mean, you can, you can look at like saliva nitric oxide, but that's not the best, uh, indicator of it, but it's, it's something that people can do in their homes. Um, so if people, I like to kind of empower them to do that kind of stuff, but then you can look at all kinds of things as far as blood work. It's like GGT and, um, uh, F2 isoprostanes and lipid peroxides and all that kind of stuff to see if, if we've got, you know, oxidative stress and DNA damage. Um, I, I, I again, if people are really interested, I, I, I have them look at that, but then as far as the, um, the stress response, I mean, I, I like people to track heart rate variability. Um, that's, that's, was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, you know, the, the respiratory sinus arrhythmia, um, where we're looking at, you know, uh, the difference between the, the fastest and the slowest, um, uh, pace your heart gets, um, during breathing, uh, and the, the, the bigger gap there is, the more, you know, quote unquote adaptability your nervous system has. And so that's to me, the best indicator of how balanced is someone's autonomic nervous system. So, um, that's kind of like, you know, the last phase of like a coaching program that I put someone through, um, because I, I feel like sometimes it's the hardest to do. And so I want people to start feeling better before they start 
um, before I start making them like have to meditate or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, those are, those are three main things that I like to measure. Um, but there, there will be a times when, um, someone comes to me and it's like, we need to, you know, we need to gut heal first. I mean, this person is so inflamed and that's where inflammation starts is, is in the gut, uh, that we need to do some gut healing. And it's like, okay, let's, let's get some testing. Let's see, you know, how bad it is. Um, and then there's, I like the idea of microbiome testing, but it's kind of like the wild west right now. Um, I don't know that we know too much about it. Um, but I, I will say that I gained some, like when I did some, when I did it, I, I gained some information and some knowledge. Um, but again, it's, it's expensive. Um, and it's, uh, I'd rather people put their money toward other things. They're going to get them healthy. Um, than, than a ton of testing unless they're willing to pay for it and they just want to know. Yeah. I mean, I, that was one of the problems I see with, with, you know, I, and I applaud some of the functional medicine and integ integrated medicine doctors out there that are kind of stepping out the box a little bit. But when I see the first thing you do is, is the patient comes up and they've got to order, you know, $800 worth of labs before they even get in the door, before they've even seen the doctor. That's a little frustrating. I mean, I think that doesn't really serve, you know, serve the right people. I think, I think it's a little bit of a, kind of a scam in my view. So it's good to see that, you know, you're kind of, you know, minimizing that and using, preserving it for when it's, when it's actually needed. Because I think, you know, and I've been criticized for this for, for saying that, you know, a lot of these labs may not be that helpful, particularly when it comes to chronic disease. And a lot of that we can, we can figure out without that stuff and, you know, that sort of things. Um, let me ask you, you know, where, I guess, where people can find you. Um, you're, are you in Virginia? I, I, I wasn't, uh, I heard you say Blacksburg, and I know. Or yeah, I, mean, I heard you said Virginia Tech, and I know Blacksburg's out. It's in Blacksburg. Yeah, I'm in I'm in Roanoke, so about maybe 45 Roanoke. minutes from Blacksburg, Virginia Tech. So. Okay. Yeah, I remember I, I was there for the Collegiate National Powerlifting Championships. God, many many years ago, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I flew out to Virginia <laughs> Tech, and that was one of my early powerlifting contests. I think I took fifth. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, yeah, I'm in I'm in uh, Virginia. I uh, uh, my website is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, that's why I, I run my coaching. So if people want to work with me, you know, they can head there. Uh, but I also try and post interesting things on the blog, mostly about the heart. Um, and uh, let's see what else is on there. Um, links to like my books and things like that. Uh, and then I'm, I'm on social media a bit re reluctantly, but I, I, if I want to get like my message out, I realize that's the best way to do it. But I'm on uh Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. It's just uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. People can find me there. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.